we're uh, in the midst of one of Paul's missionary journeys, and he's in Antioch, and uh, he's going to the synagogue, and he's there to preach. Um, in those days, if you turned up as an honoured guest in the synagogue, quite often there would be a, uh, an invitation to come up the front and to share uh, and to speak. And uh, as Paul does that, um, he lands it with these two verses, or we describe as two verses, verse 38 and 39. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Fantastic summary of these two signs of this very precious coin, this good news of Jesus. Forgiveness of sin, if you like, in in terms of the negative, the the thing that we are freed from, and justification, put right with God. If you like, the negative way of putting it and the positive way of of doing it. Forgiveness of sin simply being that sense that um, that part of me or that aspect of me Um, that thread that runs through me, that that just puts me first, that puts me on the throne of my life, that thinks I'm the centre of the universe, that there is a way in which I can be forgiven. But more than that, that I'm not simply let off, as it were, but that I am justified, I am put right with God. It's a way of remembering what justified means. It's just as if I'd never sinned. I'm actually put right with God. Now, I don't know whether you've ever heard of the term an elevator pitch. I guess in this country it would be a lift pitch. It doesn't sound quite as good that way. If you are, uh, you're trying to pitch a business, um, you need somebody to invest in your idea, they talk about having an elevator pitch, a 30-second summary that if you managed to get into an elevator with somebody who had some money to invest and you, could, you literally had between floors to get them on side, you would say, right, here's my pitch. This is what I want you to invest in. Verse 38 and 39, you'd think, There it is. There's your pitch. Forgiveness of sins, justification with God. Uh, Forgiven, put right, done. So why on earth does Paul do all the rest? It's an odd thing in the book of Acts, and actually throughout Christian history, that people have felt that when they want to tell people about Jesus, it isn't enough simply to go, here's the pitch. Forgiveness, justification. And certainly in the book of Acts, there are some very long sermons, some very long evangelistic talks. There's one here in Acts 13. There's another one in Acts 17 we're going to look at next week. Paul does a lot of talking before he ever gets to verse 38 and 39. We can only assume, probably, that this is a summary of what he talked about. Otherwise, it's very dense. But he begins in verse 16, just on the previous page. It says, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And then he does a whole load of storytelling. He literally goes all the way back to Abraham He walks them through Israel's history of being chosen, of being slaves in Egypt, of being rescued out of Egypt, of going through the wilderness into the promised land, of having different leaders that God appoints over them and ending up with King David and the way in which King David was somebody after God's own heart and then who the promises that God made, John the Baptist arriving and then Jesus. That's a lot of storytelling. That's a lot of talking before he gets around to what's right at the heart of what he wants to tell them. And I want to suggest that the reason he does that is one that takes us right to the heart of sometimes why we struggle to imagine that anybody that we know might ever be even vaguely interested in Christian faith, unless they're already on the inside, as it were. And why sometimes we even misunderstand the faith it is that we follow. Because to imagine that it can be boiled down to an elevator pitch is to imagine, I want to suggest, 
that the Christian faith is simply or predominantly an idea, a concept, a thought, a way of seeing the world, something that can be boiled down into a few words. But actually, in Bible terms, the good news of Jesus isn't a concept primarily to be understood, isn't an idea to simply grab the imagination, nor is it even simply a religious way of life to be commended as a good way to live. Though in some ways it's all of those things. But it's far more. It is, very simply, good news. And news is not something that simply works in a vacuum. News is something that happens. A real person at a real time, in a real place, with real people, affecting a real story. And I think that's why Paul goes right back to the beginning. He says to the people he's talking to, here's your story. Let's make sure we're talking about the same thing. Let's retell your story together. Let's tell the story, because he's talking to Jews at this point. Let's tell the story of the Jewish nation. Let's go back to Abraham when you were chosen. Let's go into Egypt, where we know you went as slaves. Let's get you out of Egypt, being rescued by Moses. Let's go through the wilderness together. Let's remember how God provided leadership for you as a people, and especially how he provided King David. Let's remember how God promised that one day he'd send a saviour, the Messiah. Let's remember how John the Baptist came. And let's remember then how Jesus' life and death and resurrection are part of this story that makes you who you are. It's news. It's something, actually someone, who has actually happened in history. Not simply an idea or a concept, something that we have to persuade people simply to believe with their minds. And it's an event and a person in history whose life and death and resurrection has changed history and changed the story. But what makes it good? To put it in trivial terms, there's a huge difference between news and good news. If you came and told me, Richard, good news, Liverpool won today. Now, that's news. To me, it's not particularly good news. I, I, I don't have a problem with Liverpool winning unless they were playing Manchester City, but I, I, it's not especially good to me. I'm not particularly bothered about football and I'm not particularly, not particularly bothered about Liverpool. It's just news. The only thing that would make it good news to me is if it mattered to me and to my life. If you'd come and tell me, Richard, good news, somebody's just put £5,000 in your bank account, that's good news, okay? That directly affects me, it's part of my story. I'm looking at my bank account thinking, there's something there now that wasn't there before. Happy days, fantastic, good news. There is this fundamental difference between something that simply happens and something that happened that is good. It's only good if it addresses something in my life that matters to me. In my experience, that people aren't generally anti-Christian faith. When I end up talking to people about Jesus, it's not actually, for the most part, that people are aggressively atheistic. You meet a few, but not predominantly. It's not that people think that it's all completely nuts, although sometimes people get that far. It's much more that it's just irrelevant. Just, just a bit, well, thanks for telling me, but it doesn't affect my life. I'm still going into work tomorrow or I'm still going off to school tomorrow or, you know, my bank balance is just what it was, you know, before you told me and my family is the same as it was and life is the same as it was. So thanks for telling me. Move on. And that is, I do genuinely believe, how most people interact with the Christian faith. It's not a bad thing. 
Sometimes it's quite a happy thing, Christmas, Easter, weddings. Sometimes it's even a good thing. I mean, I, I, things like what's been happening around the Grenfell Tower. I do think people look at the Christian faith and think, well, it's great, isn't it good? Christians getting out there doing good. But is it good news? Well, it's only going to be good news to anybody if it connects in with the story of our life and if they genuinely believe that what Jesus did, his life and death and resurrection, changes something. And for that matter, addresses something that's important to me. And that's exactly what you see Paul doing here. We haven't got time, sadly, to go through sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, the way he does it. But what you find, basically, is that he takes their story, he knows it very well, he's a fellow Jew, and he does these two things. He first connects Jesus in and says, you know this thread of your story, what makes you you? Here's Jesus in that narrative. Here's Jesus at this point in the story. And here's you. Here's how it all connects together. And the second thing he does is as he's telling the story, it's as if he highlights for them why this story is important. A different way of putting it would be he highlights for them the things they most long for. So the people he's speaking to in this synagogue most longed for three or four key things. There was the longing for the people of God that they belonged to to be a whole people again. They were at the time under enemy occupation from uh, the Romans. They didn't have their own king properly. The, the temple worship was compromised. They couldn't live under their own laws. They longed to be free. They longed to be whole. They longed to belong to a proper people again. They most of all longed for a leader. That's why I think Paul spends quite a bit of time talking to them about the different leaders that God has given them. And then says, but Jesus. Then there's the whole business of sin. It's not really language that works very well with most of our friends. It, it works in adverts for you know, naughty but nice ice creams, but it doesn't really go beyond that. But for the Jews he was talking to, sin was a big deal. The whole sacrificial system in the temple, the whole business of priests and, and, and the holy of holies, that was all to do with forgiveness of sin. And so he says to them, you know that thing you long for? Jesus, his life, death and resurrection. He addresses the longing of your heart. It's good news. It's not simply an idea or a concept or a religious way of life. This is a life that has changed things. And it's more than just news, it's good news for you. Because it addresses the longings of your heart. The question is, are we able to do the same today? Now one of the interesting things is then to compare how Paul and others talk to different groups of people. Next week, I think it is next week, we're looking at Acts um, 17. Um, when Paul is in Athens. I was just checking, I was getting the right uh, reference there. When Paul is in Athens, and he was not talking to Jews this time, he's talking to Greeks. Totally different story, different narrative. He doesn't tell them the story then about Abraham and Moses and going through the wilderness and into the promised land and sin. He tells a completely different story. But he still tells a story that lands with Jesus. And he till, still tells a story that raises to the surface, sort of puts above the parapet the longings of the human heart and says, this Jesus is good news for you because he addresses the longings of your heart, of your life. You see, I think so often when we're thinking about, gosh, how would I ever talk about Jesus, faith, 
To anybody I know who's not already a Christian, who's not already a churchgoer, doesn't already, if you like, buy into this, we think we're, we're having to put across a concept or an idea or a religious way of life as if this is really about persuasion, about knowing enough to sort of get one over somebody intellectually. Now, there's a right, absolutely vital place for intellectual inquiry, proper apologetics, being able to deal with the big questions people have got, not ducking those. But we mustn't imagine that this is primarily a 2 plus 2 equals 4 argument. This is telling the story of people's lives and saying, do you recognise that this person, Jesus, who lived, who died, who rose again, sits at the very heart of history? And that the longings that you live for, that I live for, actually are fulfilled in the good news of Jesus. Now, I reckon we can only do that if we can answer that question for ourselves. I wonder if somebody were to ask you, what longings in the story of your life is Jesus good news for? If you trace the story of your personal own life back to when you were born and trace that story through, that the longings you've got, the things you you want the most, the things you're living for, those unspoken ground of your being things that you most want, significance, belonging, love, friendship, status, whatever it is. How does the good news of Jesus, how is Jesus, life and death and resurrection, good news for you? Because I reckon until we can do that, it's almost impossible to imagine how we answer those questions for anybody else. And if we don't do that, then the Christian faith is at best a thing that it can occasionally do good works in community in crisis. That is pretty good at the high days and holidays and Christmas and Easter and throwing a good party. That's a good thing to be known for. But probably most of the time is simply a somewhat eccentric part-time obsession of some slightly odd people. Not particularly harmful, not something to be fought against, not something to be wiped out, but simply irrelevant and certainly not good news. That's why Paul doesn't simply give the elevator pitch. The elevator pitch simply sails by. Just words. What he does is tell the story, their story, in such a way that they can see Jesus as the one whose life and death and resurrection absolutely becomes the epicenter of history and whose life and death and resurrection, the offer of forgiveness and being put right with God, his leadership of his people, his bringing of people together of every tribe and nation and tongue, answers the very deepest longings of the human heart. That's why it's good news. For them then, for us today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your life and death and resurrection. Thank you that you came and walked in the dust of this earth at a particular point in history, at a particular place, at a particular time. Thank you for the way in which your life then connects up with the stories of each of our lives. And thank you that in living and dying and rising again, you are God's answer to the very deepest longings of the human heart. Even as we worship you this afternoon, we pray that you would remind us of how it is you meet our deepest longings. How it is you bring us forgiveness and rightness with you. 
But we pray too that you would give us the belief and expectation and vision that what is good news for us is good news for those whom we know. Amen.